0: Number two this morning, so glad that you are here again with us today, thankful for the presence of the Lord here with us this morning. We're in verse 12 of Revelation 2, Revelation chapter 2 verse 12. where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon, you the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. With a new name written on a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it, amen, the word, the Lord this morning. Last week, of course, we we looked at the letter to the church of Smyrna, and we saw in there an exhortation from Jesus to that church to be faithful, be faithful even to the point of death. A message was needed for a church that was soon to face imprisonment. To be quite honest, it's needed for us today. As our society seems to be going further and further away from God, faithfulness is what we need. But along with determination, with faithfulness, if you would, with persistence must also come wisdom. Must also come discernment. It's not enough for us to merely have determination. We must also have what we refer to as Christians or in the Bible as discernment. What is discernment? Well, according to the dictionary of Bible, things discernment... Is the sound judgment which makes possible the distinguishing of good from evil and the recognition of God's right ways for His people. It is necessary for the understanding of spiritual realities and on a practical level for right government and avoidance of life's pitfalls. They go on and they state this, discernment is given by God through his Holy Spirit. It is received through God's word and through the insight of a renewed mind. Discerning believers seek to grow in their understanding and knowledge of God's truth. Why is this important? It's important because what we will see in the church of Pergamon is a group of people who are bold, who are steadfast in their faith, who are strong against the attacks of the enemy. And yet they were allowing individuals to come into their midst who were going to destroy them from the inside. What we will see in this church, of course, is a realization that sometimes it isn't the enemy who's in front of us, the enemy that we can see but rather the one who is in our midst that can do the most damage. The question for you and I is whether or not we are allowing the enemies of our soul to creep into our church and destroy our relationship and testimony with God. And so we look at this church and we notice, first of all, that the one who speaks is the one with the sword. The one who is speaking is the one who is holding the sword. As I said last several weeks here now, read these words. The one who is speaking, the one with the words, they are references back to chapter 1. Revelation 1.16, in his right hand, speaking of Jesus, he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now why does Jesus identify himself to the church in Pergamum as one who is holding a sword? Well, first of all, we know that Pergamum was the center of Roman government. In fact, it was the seat of Roman government in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, which is where these letters were being sent. Okay, Rome had its different provinces as it ruled the known world at that time, and there they had a province in Asia Minor, minor modern-day Turkey, and in this province, the city of Pergamon, it was the center of Roman government. Pergamon was the first city to build a temple to the Roman emperor, to Caesar Augustus. They were the first ones to build a temple so that they might worship Caesar Augustus as as God, as deity. The worship of the Roman Empire played a major role in this city's life. Pergamon was the place of residents, of the proconsul, the Roman official who governed the territory of Asia Minor. His headquarters were in Pergamum. And this proconsul, of course, had the authority of the Roman government behind him. He had the authority to put people to death. And of course, as we know, a symbol of this power and authority was the sword. We see this in Scripture. Paul speaks of the need for submission to government. Romans 13, and what does he say? He says that government, Romans 13, verse 4, is God's servant for your good. So as long as you are doing good and government is acting properly, it is a servant for us so that we can have a peaceful, well-maintained society so that we're not all running into each other on highway, right? But if he, as long as you're doing good, God is, or government is your servant, but if you do wrong, be afraid. Why? Because government does not bear the sword in vain. For government is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the sword, again, is God's way of saying that when the power and the authority of the government comes at you, okay, and it does not matter if the police officer is strong and looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger or whether he looks like Barney Fife okay, with his one bullet in his pocket, the fact that he is wearing that badge symbolizes a greater power and authority than what you and I possess, and we listen to them. And so when you consider the fact that the sword represents the the rule and judgment of the government, what is Christ saying to the church? He is telling them that the real power, the real authority, the real source of power is not Rome. It's not Pergamum where you are living. It is Jesus Christ himself. He is the judge. The one, again, as the Apostles' Creed says, He will come to judge the living and the dead. And even in our country, at times, it feels like we're being ruled by nine people, black robes in Washington, D.C., who sit on our Supreme Court. We all sit around and wait every June for them to make the rulings on how we are to live our life. The fact of the matter is the ultimate judge is the one who sits on the throne of heaven. And so when you, when you think about this, you might see this church being, or this letter being written to a church in Washington, D.C., the church in Harrisburg, if you would. You think you are in the center of power, and you are. Because again, power is granted by God and God is the one who sets up and removes kings. God is the one who, who ultimately sets rulers on the throne. But Jesus is saying to the church, you should not fear man's power. You fear the power of the ultimate judge, the universe. So Christ tells them he is the final judge, he is the final authority. But of course we also know that the word of God is symbolized as a sword. Hebrews 4:12, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and the discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is how the judgment of God is meted out. This is how the judgment of God is measured, in accordance with His Word. This is the standard. This is what we go by. We don't go by what we put as our official statement of belief. We go by what saith the Word of God. And what Christ is conveying here is that you and Pergamon should know that he is the true and rightful judge of the earth. So Christ speaks to them as one who holds a sword. Secondly, we see Christ praises them. He praises them. Praises them for their determination. Praises them for their determination. He writes to them, I'm the one who holds the sword and I want you to know that I've got praise for you. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And yet despite the fact that you are dwelling on the very throne room of Satan, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. By the way, you did not deny it. Even when one of your own, Antipas, was killed among you. You did not deny, even though one of your very own was martyred. I know where you live. And despite the fact that you live in such a place, you are holding fast. Not denied your faith, even as one of you were martyred. You stood strong. Again, that's high praise when Jesus talks about knowing that where they live is, again, Satan's throne. He could be very well referring to the fact that they're dwelling in the seat of the Roman government for Asia Minor. And as this city expressed openly its devotion to Rome as they incorporated taxes to support the worship of the Caesar, you can understand how a church there Having a church is in the very bowels of hell itself. Furthermore, Pergamum was a a center of pagan cults. For example, the cult of Asclepius, the serpent god of healing, was prominent in Pergamum. The serpent symbol of Asclepius also may have been one of the emblems of the city. This could be why John is referring to the throne of Satan. Zeus, Athene, Demeter, and Dionysus were also gods who received significant cultic affection. This reference to the saint's throne may also have been brought to mind because of the hill that was behind Pergamon, which was the site of many temples, prominent among which was the throne like altar to Zeus, which might have been sufficient enough to arouse. The thought of the devil's throne. Hopefully, the point is being made. The Church of Pergamon lived in a city that was filled with idol worship, it's filled with the Rome, it's filled with all kinds of worship and deification of the emperor. It was not a place to live, and yet this. People, This church was a determined group of people. They lived and they stood strong. Even when Rome came to them and said, Antipas, if you don't deny my name, I am going to take off your head. They looked at the rest of the people and said, let that be a lesson to you. And the rest of the people said, we will... I, I, Jesus. This, of course, challenges us, doesn't it? What are you going to do? What are you going to do in times of persecution? We saw it play out again even here in our own region down in Philadelphia where a hockey player was being asked to wear a pride jersey. And he set out, did the practice in warm-ups because he would not wear to win against this faith and, of course, caused all kinds of outrage. We saw yesterday, last night, as Tony Dungy was on the NBC broadcast of the football game that was on, Tony Dungy, the very man who the day before on Friday was in Washington speaking to the Rally for Life, the March for Life. Again, the outrage. How dare, how dare Tony Dungy be a committed Christian? And look, those those are professional athletes. They're in the media. They're in the spotlight. Maybe he won't be there, but... What are you going to do? What are you going to do if the challenge comes your way? To give in to this world, to deny that Jesus is Lord. The church of Pergamum stood strong. They were praised for their determination, but we also noticed the church. The church was reproved for its lack of discernment. Yes, it is good. It is good that you stood strong, even when you see individuals in your midst being martyred. And yet look at verse 14. I have a few things against you. You have some there who are holding to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is Jesus talking about here? What is this? teaching of Balaam. Peter mentions it as well, Second 2 Peter 2.15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Of course, this harkens us back to Numbers 22. Recall, Balaam was sent for by Balak, the king of Moab. The king of Moab's spies came and they told him the people of Israel, marching through the land and They're coming to us and they've already conquered, they've already defeated the Egyptians and so on and so forth. They're coming your way, Balak king of Moab. You better do something. So Balak is like, "Oh, I, I don't think we can beat them if they're beating the Egyptians. I mean, they're the most powerful army in the world. So Balak has this bright idea, I'll find Balaam and Balaam will curse them. Of course, in Numbers 22, Balaam Summoned for by Balak. Balaam says, I can't curse if God won't let me. Of course, we know the story of Balaam and his donkey. It gives all of us hope that if God can use a donkey, He can use even me. Hopefully you feel that way, whatever. But Balaam has a problem. Balaam has a problem. You see, Balak, when he calls Balaam up to him, Offers Balaam a huge pile of cash. And Balaam wants a huge pile of cash. Sick and tired of the used chariot. Wheel keeps falling off. Whatever else. I want a new Mercedes Benz. I'm sick and tired of this house with so much cold air blown in in the wintertime. I would love to have a heated indoor pool or whatever else. So even though Balaam is being denied by God to, to, to curse the Israelites, Balaam gets a great idea. Goes to Balak and says, what you don't need to do is curse the Israelites. What you need to do is invite them to come in and be a part of your group. Invite them. Cook them a big old party. Have all kinds of wine and everything else. Have beautiful women there. And they will collapse like a house of cards. Numbers 25, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These daughters of Moab invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to the gods of Baal. Or Moab, I should say. So Israel yoked itself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And Jesus tells the church here in Pergamum that the exact same thing that happened there. Individuals who are coming and causing the people of Israel to stumble and fall because they want money and they want prestige and power. So it is that individuals are coming into the middle of your church and you are being taught that it is okay to compromise, to sacrifice to these pagan gods, to worship the Roman emperor, You are being taught that it is okay to go along with the idolatrous practices in this city. Furthermore, he reproves them for those who are teaching the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Again, as we saw a few weeks ago, the Nicolaitans are teaching a compromise, that acquiescing to the world is not a bad thing. Maybe we should all just go along to get along. After all, we don't want any trouble. So do you see, do you see where the problem is? When Jesus sees the need to rebuke and come against this church, despite their zeal, their determination to stand for Jesus, they were being rotted away by their false teachers who were leading them down the wrong path. Al Mohler is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he has a podcast, which I like to listen to, in which he offers biblical worldviews on some of today's issues. Tuesday, he had a news story about the Church of England. A guy named Bishop John Inge, Bishop of Worcester in England, Bishop John has written an open letter to his diocese. And in this letter, he sets out why he believes that the celebration and honoring of monogamous, faithful, same-sex relationships by the Church of England would be consonant with the scriptural witness. Oh, Bishop John, he, 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 he explains himself. He says, perhaps... Some of you are wondering why I am questioning church doctrine when as a bishop I should be upholding it. He continued, I want to make clear that I consider my duty to uphold church doctrine even when I argue for it to be changed. Bishop John, to his great credit, I guess, says I would not marry a same-sex couple in the church any more than I would have taken part in the ordination of a woman as a bishop before the Church of England allowed it. I did, however, argue at that time for a departure of what similarly had for centuries been the general understanding of what Scripture and the tradition of the church required. Aren't you just proud of this guy and his... I mean, I'm not going to marry a same-sex couple, but I am going to ask if we can overturn centuries of scriptural understanding centuries of Church of England tradition. It goes on even further because, not through Al Mohler, but just in the news that came out, the Church of England said Wednesday it will continue to refuse to allow same-sex couples to marry in its churches, affirming its teaching that marriage is between a man and a woman. Bishops will, however, issue an apology to LGBT people for the rejection, exclusion, and hostility they have faced. The Church of England said it would issue pastoral guidance to its ministers and congregations, urging them to welcome same-sex couples unreservedly and joyfully. The proposals would also allow same-sex couples to come to church thanks for their civil marriage or civil partnership and receive God's blessing. Now, I just ask you, do you think really that Bishop John is okay with that statement given by Justin Welby, the archbishop of the Church of England? You think he's going, oh, that's good enough. I mean, forget what I said. Of course he isn't. And yet instead of rebuking Instead of removing this guy, they allow them to be in the church. And how long will it be before the Church of England says, okay, we'll allow marriage in our churches that are contrary to centuries of biblical understanding. And I know what you're thinking this morning. Oh, that, that's across the pond, you know. That's, uh, that's a mainline denomination, You know, the Church of England, the Episcopals, Anglicans, whatever, they're all kind of weird anyways, I don't know. But how many times do we hear of a former pastor who renounces his faith, walks away, and even some set up programs where they can help you walk away. I don't believe anymore, I can't believe that, that we as a church How many former contemporary Christian musicians? Some have sung really great songs. We've sung them here in church, and yet they're now in alternative lifestyles and said, I don't believe. I don't believe. Famous contemporary Christian artist who was big during the 80s and 90s recently hosted same-sex wedding in her home in Nashville, Nashville area. Recently saying, I, I, I think God approves of these two. We could go on and on. There are sermons delivered in churches. that are all about self-help. and never explore the gospel, the good news of God that is in Christ Jesus. Music is sung that could be sung either talking about God or our lover or whoever. There's no discernment. There's heresy in them. We point out false doctrines and we sing them. We listen to their sermons. We go to their conferences. We buy their books. And all in all, they are eroding and chipping away at what we hold to and believe as evangelical, conservative Christians in America. And it's so easy it's so easy just to get in line, just to go along, just to get swept away. I mean, I mean, don't you understand? There's, there's tens of thousands of people that go. They're on Oprah Winfrey. They're on Good Morning America. They're on these major news outlets. Again, a very prominent pastor, one of the largest churches in the country. It's on CNN and asked, Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And the best he could say was, I believe it's my way to heaven. He is my way to heaven. It's not just the ones who embrace agnostic or liberal tendencies. By the way, you're probably all sitting there saying, Amen. If you do that, we're going to throw you out in your ear, and I hope you will. What about those who teach heretical beliefs? even in our conservative side. And we listen to them because they align with us politically. They're good at bashing the ones that we like to bash. And we listen to them and they teach heresy and false doctrine, even falling on the more conservative side. The point is, we need to live with the spirit of discernment. We need to be careful that what we are listening to, reading, and being influenced by conforms and comports to the Word of God. The Word of God alone. Paul says these things, 2 Timothy 3.15, How from a child ye have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. How do you know about salvation? Through the sacred writings, through the Holy Scriptures. Galatians 1a, but even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be a curse. Again, I've kind of said it before, but if somebody shows up right now Okay, and they did not walk in the back, they did not walk in the side, they just appeared. We'll make sure, first of all, that I don't smash Jim's guitar, but after I pick myself up the floor, even if he shows up from the roof and he starts preaching something that's contrary to the word of God, it is my job. It is your job to say, no, you are wrong. You're wrong. Well, yeah, but he showed up from nowhere. He just appeared out thin air. I know, but he's preaching contrary to Scripture. Second Peter verse one, chapter 1, verse 20, Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. If what people are saying does not conform with the teachings of God's Holy Scripture, they are not of God. Jesus is the one who holds the sword. He commends the church for their determination. He protests against it because of their lack of discernment. And then, my fourth point Jesus warns of the dangers. Warns of the dangers. Warns of the dangers of not repenting. After laying out all these things, Jesus commands the church to repent. He then warns of the dangers of not repenting, of continuing to allow these evil teachers to permeate their midst. Verse 16, therefore, repent. If you don't, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The church is unwilling to deal with false teachers in their midst. Know that Jesus will come and deal with them. Jesus will judge them. He will expose them as the frauds and charlatans that they are. It may not be in our lifetime, but there will be a day when they will stand there and they will give an account for the words that they have taught. We need a life of discernment. We need as believers to be bold, to be strong, also to be wise. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. I'm going to give you a list here. I don't have time to go through all of them. But somebody wrote a blog and I thought it was good, so I copied it. List of 15 ways to have discernment. 15 things to think about, and you won't remember all of them. maybe one or two will stick in your mind. First of all, does the teaching sound strange. Does it sound strange? Have you somebody's saying something and you're like, "I've never heard of that before?" Probably because it's not of God. Does it sound too good to be true? Not in the next life, but in this life. Somebody's promising you that your world is going to be perfect if you follow them. Does it involve trinkets or relics or holy water? Christianity does not deal in magic. Does it involve prophetic words? Again, not powerful preaching or a word fiddly spoken, but people who get up and say, well, you know, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me, and and they tell you that if you don't listen to them, you're going against what God is saying, and you cannot test that word in light of Scripture. Do angels or aliens or seed money play a major role? If your religion involves aliens, you probably need to turn it off. (laughs) Does it feature prominently the word code? Does somebody have a code? Can somebody unlock the code to what God is saying? Does it involve secrets? This is the appeal of Gnosticism. And scripture purported to lead the initiative into the realm of secret knowledge. That's why Masons and Mormons and whoever else that deal in these secretive things Sorry, I have no secret that if you come to my class tomorrow morning at 3.30 in the morning, I will tell you and disclose. Don't come, I won't be awake. Does you rely on a cartoon view of God? God who is a big strong man or some God who is passing out beads at Woodstock or whatever. Does he use big themes to negate specific verses? Again, this is what we see, love, right? We should love everyone. Yes, amen, we should love everyone. We should also love them enough to teach the truth of what God's Word says. There's a promoted, unmediated, unmediated approach to Scripture. False spirituality tries to foster intimacy with God that does not go through the mediated revelation of Scripture and does not lead to the mediation of Christ on the cross. Does it teach or traffic in underdefined terms and slogans? Liberalism starts with an inattention to words. We have to be careful in the words that we are saying and using. Does it neglect the need for repentance? Does a false teacher seem to be obsessed about one person, one doctrine, or one idea, and that's all they hammer on? Every time you talk to them, it's the same old thing. Is a represent an unbalanced representation of the truth. As Christians, we walk the tightrope. Between truth and grace, God is, or Christ is God and man, salvation by faith alone and Christian life. Sometimes people want to do away with one tension and just teach one. The teaching filled with the Bible story. Santa. If it does not fit with these ideas of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Okay, creation being Genesis 1, the fall Genesis 3, redemption, the work of Christ on the cross, consummation, the end of revelation. When God makes all things new, it probably is false. You need to be discerning. You need to be wise. Because again, yeah, we can see the big bad monster out there. We can stand and say, I'm not going to wear a hockey sweater that has a pride logo on it. But again, what good is it for us not to wear that logo and we still wind up in damnation because we don't believe the truth? You need to use wisdom. Last point this morning there's good news. There's good news for the determined, discerning. Jesus says, Repent. If you don't repent, I will come and judge. Verse 17 tells us, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One who conquers I will give of some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on a stone that no one knows. The hidden manna again harkens back. Harkens back to what Jesus says there when he says you're allowing those to come in and and teach you that's okay to eat food that's sacrificed to idols. It harkens back to the Balaam narrative and the fact that the people of Israel should have relied on the manna from heaven instead of the fine feast that the Moabites offered them. It is suggested that the white stone stands for an innocent verdict as that time when you were tried, you're often given a black stone if you're guilty, a white stone if you're innocent. It also stood sometimes for a passive admission We didn't exactly have smartphones or QR codes that held our tickets, so you gave them a white stone. And on that stone, you would give them a new name, a new identification, a new name that only they knew. All of these speak of a final reward, a consummate identification with Christ. Our faithfulness to Christ, our faithfulness, our devotion to the Word of God, our willingness to identify Him will one day lead us to an intimacy, a dinner, a feast that the world will not participate in. And so again, I I challenge you as I did last week. We need boldness. We need courage in this day and hour. But we also need discernment. We need wisdom in who we're listening to Allowing to influence us. Please don't just ever walk away and say, well, this is what Pastor Matt said. I guess I should do it. No. Walk away and say, you know what? What he said lines up with what thus saith the word of God. If it doesn't, you need to do something about it. You need to run me out on a rope or you need to get away from here as fast as you can. Your soul matters to God. And what you believe matters. It needs to matter to you. Even, like I said, if it's an angel that comes down from heaven. So what is the truth? The truth is what we sang about at the beginning of the day. God so loved us. He gave His only Son to die for our sins. If you believe on Him, you will have forgiveness of your sins. And that's the truth. The truth, again, is those words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. And on and on that you can read in the back of your handout. Pursue the truth, buy the truth, and do not sell it. It will bring salvation to your souls. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Worship team, if you guys want to come. Lord, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us. And God, You have revealed through Your Scriptures the way that we should believe and the way that we should live. Lord, I pray for this courage, this boldness, this willingness to stand no matter the cost, no matter the price. Lord, I also pray for wisdom and discernment. God, I be careful to follow the truth, to follow the Word of God alone. That we as a church would not allow in our midst... Somebody to come that's charismatic and flashy and yet they're leading us astray. God, we would not give ourselves to reading books that teach contrary to sound scripture. We would not have Bible studies whatever else that does not line up with us, saith the word of the Lord. Help us to pursue the truth of all costs. Help us to be wise and discerning in what we are hearing and listening to and heeding our prayer.